You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name's Dean. It's great to gather here this morning. Wasn't Robert's baptism awesome? Wasn't awesome to watch that together? Just great. We had another baptism at 9 o'clock. Just a lot to celebrate today in terms of what the Lord is doing here in our church. We're in a series called Dear Church. We're starting it today in the book of Revelation, uh, which, Dear Church, it really is a letter. The book of Revelation was never written or designed to scare you, uh, to make you speculate, to say, oh, is this helicopter in this war? Is this rev-? None of those kind of things. Rather, it's to point you to the fact that Jesus really is in control. Uh, it's to show that all the, prop- the prophecies and the promises that God has made have all been fulfilled in Jesus. And also on top of that, it pushes the church onto faithfulness, knowing that one day Jesus is going to return. So we're going to be in the book of Revelation for the next six weeks, uh, looking at different letters written to specific churches in the book. Before I do that, let's pray. Uh, We have obviously much to pray for going on in our world right now, so let's go to the Lord together. Father, we are thankful for your great name, and that our creator and God actually speaks to his people through the scriptures. How amazing that we have the words of our God. I ask that we'll be found faithful and be good stewards of that reality that you have spoken to us through the scriptures. We lift up the people of Ukraine to you today. Also, many people in Russia who are against what's taking place. Lord, we ask for peace. Uh, We ask you be with the people. Lord, I don't even know what to pray sometimes, but we trust that you are sovereign. And we lift up our brothers and sisters to you who are there right now in their churches, to pastors, and there's great seminaries there, and the believers who are there, our family. Lord, we ask you to be with all the people and all the Christians as well. Uh, We just ask that your name be made known and that you work things out in your sovereignty. We know that everyone is subject to you, that nothing can happen in this world without your allowance of it. So we lo- worship our sovereign God today. Even when it doesn't make sense to us, we look to you, which is always our best option. So I ask you to be with our churches. We gather today, be the churches across our city as they gather. We keep the enemy out of this place and out of our city. In the name of Jesus, we proclaimed everywhere across this town. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here in the book of Revelation, again, it was never designed to scare you or make you speculate, but rather to produce faithfulness to Christians, the actual letter that is written to existing churches at the time to push them towards faithfulness. When you see things happen in the world, our first posture should not be, oh, is that Revelation? That's never how the book was designed to be read. And that didn't even start happening in Christian circles until about 150 years ago, which in church history is a really, really short time. Like, we're really not in the business of new as Christians. We have an ancient text, an ancient Bible, and a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But it should continue to make us aware that Christ is going to return one day. That is an absolute orthodox, important, essential promise of the scriptures that one day Jesus Christ will return for his church and will return to make all things new. So if anything, when things happen in the world, it should be a reminder to us that this world is temporary and that Christ will come back again. So the verb that gives us the words to conquer occurs 28 times in the New Testament. To conquer. 17 of these occurrences are in the book of Revelation. 17 of the 28 times to conquer is mentioned in the Bible, it's in the book of Revelation. And the conquering is not against other people. The scriptures tell us our fight is not against flesh and blood. Rather, it's to conquer and overcome sin and death once and for all. So the book of Revelation gives instruction for how the believer is to conquer instead of being conquered. Or we can say to have victory. 
And the victory is not simply over the trials of this world. We may never have victory over those in terms of them going away this side of heaven. Rather, victory over Satan, sin, and ultimately death. It's a call to persevere. It's a call to faithfulness. And you'll see throughout the series, each of the seven letters in Revelation, or, or seven mentions to specific churches, ends with, to him who overcomes. To him who triumphs. Because that is what Jesus has done, and as a result wants to lead his people to do as well. So these are letters with specific, very specific instructions to seven actual local churches. Like real churches in real places, real Christians in time and in space. And I thought about this. Imagine getting an actual letter from Jesus. Could you imagine that? Like you go out to the mailbox, and there's a real letter written to you from Jesus. I'm not really sure what the return address would be. Uh, we're told he sits at the right hand of God, so heaven somewhere. Uh, but imagine getting a letter. Don't you think you'd pay really careful attention? Like you realize it wasn't a hoax, it was real. It was like Jesus actually got out a pen and paper and wrote you a letter. Wouldn't you pay attention? Wouldn't that letter be a little more significant than a Christmas card of a family in all white on a beach? Wouldn't it matter wouldn't it get to your attention? But here's what's really neat. I and mean, I think neat was the best word I could think of. It really is that special and that important. We actually have a letter from Jesus. And it is our Bibles. We possess a letter from Jesus ourselves. So we don't have to say, oh, wouldn't it be really neat if God wrote me a letter? Because the answer is he has. And we get a chance to read one of those many letters in the scriptures that he's given us today. But in context, we must know that this was written to real people whom it made sense when they received it. The actual things being mentioned, they would have, been, would have struck home because it's actually their church. So if an actual specific literal letter was written to our church, we would go, oh, okay, I understand that. I can relate to that because that's what we're doing right now. It was actually to them. But there's more. Greg Beale, a theologian who wrote a great Revelation commentary, said this. There's a strong emphasis on this heavenly perspective so that the churches will be reminded that real spiritual struggles are going on behind the scenes. Like God gives a glimpse into the cosmos. There actually really are spiritual struggles taking place, but points us to trust in the reality that Jesus has won and is winning those struggles. So the message of Revelation, you could say, is this. It's don't give in. It's don't give up. Don't succumb to the devil and to this world. Don't believe there's other things that are better than Jesus. Don't believe there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. Don't believe you have to go around God for all the things you're looking for rather than right to him. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't succumb to the devil and the world. And it's a circular letter to be read through all the churches in the area, and that letter still applies to us and is to be read to us today. So let's jump in the text. We're going to do a different church every week from Revelation. John is the writer. He's been exiled to a place called Patmos because of his faith. He says this, John, your brother and partner in the affliction kingdom, as in I can identify with the struggles because I've experienced them too. I'm not writing from an ivory tower. I've actually lived through the suffering that you are enduring. The affliction kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus. It's because of our faith. They're not randomly happening to us. It is in Christ. Was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He is by himself exiled on an island. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. 
saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. So he's going to say, dear church, and it's going to go to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I'm going to tell you what it is I had to say to them, and I want you to write it out. It says in verse 17, when I saw him, referring to Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man, which should be our response to the holiness of God. We see that throughout the scriptures. When someone encounters God, they fall on their face. He laid his right hand on me, showing compassion, showing grace, showing mercy, and said, don't be afraid. I think there's some of the most grace-filled words we see throughout the scriptures when Jesus over and over again tells his followers, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm the first and the last. At the beginning and the end, can you see the sovereignty in that statement? I'm the first and I'm the last and the living one. I think the most important thing Christians can believe is that Jesus is alive today. He rose from the grave. He didn't just die. He rose again. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. Let my resurrection be the very hope that drives you to endure, that Easter Sunday is not a waste of your time. Your entire hope is based on it. Here I am, I'm the first and the last, and I was dead, and I'm alive right now. And more than that, I hold the keys of death and Hades. Even the devil is subject to him. He even controls death. That's how sovereign and great and powerful and mighty his name is. Now, based on all this, he says, therefore... My seminary professor used to say, anytime you see the word therefore, ask what is it therefore? Therefore, that's helpful in Bible study, as in not randomly based on everything that he just said about himself. Write what you have seen. People need to know. The church needs this for their encouragement. What is and what will take place after this? What's coming for them? What they need to make sure that they are aware of God's plan and of his sovereignty and that he is with them. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The lampstands represent the church. So the focus of the revelation John has received from God is how the church is to live in the midst of an ungodly world. Basically, and now, based on what we believe, therefore, now how shall we live? How does this matter? How do we endure this? So he tells them, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, an actual local church and congregation with elders and deacons and members, an actual church. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. How neat to hear that Jesus is with us. He is with the church. He walks with the church. Also, he knows us. Nothing's hidden from him. He says this, I know your works. This is actually positive. It's an encouragement. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. You're doing a great job. I know how you're trying to work for God and how your, your labor and, and what it means and your endurance, how you're, you're really been going strong and remaining faithful and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You're not turning a blind eye to evil or injustice. You care about these things. You don't tolerate them even. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, as in you're finding the false teachers. 
You're loving God's people and protecting the church by warning people about the false teachings that are out there, and you found them to be liars. You're not afraid to expose them for the sake of everyone else, that they're lying to people based on what they're teaching. He goes, these are great things. I commend you for your care. I know, he says, he's understanding, I know. Our lives aren't a mystery to God. Our church isn't a mystery to God. I know. They have persevered and endured hardship, persecution coming out. You've endured for the sake of my name, because what you believe, and you have not grown weary. What an encouragement to hear from Jesus. You get a letter from Jesus, and that's what he says to you? They're probably high-fiving. We're doing awesome. Man, our church is so great. Jesus himself said that we're awesome. To keep it going in these next words. Imagine this. They're reading it. The guy's reading the letter out loud to the church. But I have this against you. Jesus is about words from Jesus to your actual church. I have this against you. I think I'd be a little nervous in that moment. You have abandoned the love you had at first. But what are you talking about? You just said we're awesome. We endure and we labor and we work and we call out the false teachers and we've exposed them as liars and we've been persecuted and we're still here. I understand that. I told you that's great. I commended you for those things. But I have something against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Some translations just simply say you've abandoned your first love. And he says, so here's the answer. Remember then how far you have fallen. Well, it's like, wait, how have we fallen? Remember you said we were being good. He's like, no, no, I want to go deeper than that. Remember how far you've fallen and repent, which is a change of direction from serving yourself and serving the world to serving God. And we see in the scriptures that repentance is an act of God's grace. Romans 2 says God's kindness leads us to repentance, not his guilt, not his shame, not even his judgment. His kindness is what leads us to want to turn away from the world into God. He says, and do the works you did at first. So these are Christians here. And he's trying to call them back to what drove them at the beginning. He says, otherwise, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And the logical conclusion there is that the lampstands are the churches. What he's telling them is if they don't come back to their first love, he's going to take their church away, which is a strong statement. Then he comes back to positive again, yet you do have this. I'm going to throw you a bone. You do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which you don't know a lot about them, that they're false teachers, which I also hate. Jesus hates false teaching. He doesn't just go, oh, they're being sincere. Oh, I know their hearts are good people. He says here he hates it. Why? Because he loves his own name and his own greatness. He doesn't want his name to be taken in vain. A lot of times we think taking the Lord's name in vain means like you stub your toe and you yell God's name. I don't recommend doing that. That's not what it means. It means we're ascribing something to God that he never said and that he has never given us. It's basically remaking God in our image rather than God. And God says he hates this. Let anyone who has ears to hear, read in a letter, listen. What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, there's that word, 
who returns to their first love, who repents of sin, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life as in things as they're supposed to be, which is in the paradise of God. So the lampstand shows the church is supposed to be a, a witness to a watching world. And they've done some very good things, like I've said many times. But Jesus says, he says, I know your works, your labor, verse 2, your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. He's encouraging their faithfulness and wants them to continue. They've also dealt with false teaching. They've held a strong doctrine. Jesus says, yes, keep going, but I have this against you, verse 4. You've abandoned the love you had at first. There's an old saying that you never forget your first love. You ever heard that before? You always remember your first love. Mine was Kelly Kapowski from Stay by the Bell. If only she would have known that. So what's going on here? That's the accusation. That they've lost or abandoned the love they had at first. Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor in Charlotte and a theologian, he asked this. Can it be that we are too familiar with Jesus? That it all becomes too ordinary too commonplace and too casual. It's the kind of faith that an author named Don Carson talks about where he says we want enough of Jesus to be personally associated with, but not so much where it causes any kind of inconvenience. I think anyone describe the South any better than those words? Not atheists, not agnostics, and in this case, even doing good things but what's happening here is they have the right answers, they have the right tradition, they have the right doctrine, but they're really ultimately not loving Jesus. Ultimately what drives them and what motivates them is something other right now than their love for Christ. It didn't used to be like that, he said. But something's happened over time, again, maybe got too familiar, maybe just rituals set in not the ritual is bad. God uses ritual often, but it's drove them away from their driving motivator be being loving and doing these things because they love God. And here's, I think, why Jesus is warning them. One, he doesn't just want us to follow his rules. He wants us to be in relationship with him. He loves us and wants us to love him. But also, he knows that this won't last and by this, I mean a faith that is not driven by a love of God. When you've seen people who maybe were raised in the church or raised in a religious home, and then they eventually drift off away from the Lord, maybe as an adult, as a college student, whatever it might be, a lot of times, this is from my many conversations I have with regular everyday folks, a lot of times it's because they don't even realize it, they were presented and raised on a faith that wasn't about the love of God and the love of Christ where faith was more about, it wasn't even really faith, it was more just kind of religion. Where it was more about just don't get in trouble, do the right things, look good at church, say yes ma'am, say yes sir. You know, th th those, like do the right things. Check the boxes, go through the drills, do what you're supposed to do. And that's all fine, and it's not even going to cause, in, in the sense, it's a good thing on the surface, but there's no lasting power in that because your affections for Christ in the meantime never grew. What grew was your ability to look good or to not mess up or to say the right things or to have an emotional experience when you needed to. 
rather than an actual affections growing for Jesus. See, the motivation is misplaced. And what's happening here is affection for God is missing. So what are affections? Jonathan Edwards, a famous theologian, he had his own flaws like all men do, some pretty significant flaws, but he did contribute some great efforts to the church, and one of those things he contributed was writing on affections, like what it actually looks like to have affection for God. And he says this, the affections are the strongest motivations of the human self. Like that's ultimately what's going to drive us. Like where our affections are, what we have the most affection for is gonna drive our choices and our lives and what we do is ultimately determining everything the person is and does. So we're seeing now, more than anything, is an affection for ourselves. Self-help, self-love, over and over again, do more what makes you happy. That's kind of the mantra of the day. So as our affections grow for ourselves, I would actually argue is, is really based on insecurity more than love, but we'll talk about that one at a time. But, side note, but those affections, they're gonna go further away from God. Not that you should hate yourself, you're made in the image of God, you should not even remotely hate yourself or dislike yourself, but right now, a love and affection of self and an affection of status and affection of stuff has been repla- is replaced in affection for God. And maybe that's what was happening here. Maybe they were being faithful in some certain areas and checking the boxes, but their affections were misplaced. And they still had enough religion to look good, but not so much where it could fool God. Because Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Good job, the false teachers. That's important but I have this against you. And when you hear Jesus say he has this against you, it's because he's for you. He's for you. And he, he, his salvation accomplished a relationship where God is eternally for us. And he wants us to return back to ultimately being for him. See, this affections are going to the strongest motivations of the human self. They're going to determine everything the person is and does. There, there, are, are, there are strong inclinations, we could say, of the soul. And they're carried out in thinking, in feeling, and in how we act. God wants our affections to drive everything for him. We see this in the scriptures. The love of Christ compels us. That's what motivates us. That's what drives us. God's love for us to hopefully grow our love for him. And here's good news for us is I'm not very good at loving God. Anytime I preach, please know this, I'm preaching to myself before I'm preaching to anyone else. This is a great reminder for me. It gives me great hope. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So I'm not trying to grow my affections for God in order for him to grow his affections for me. His affections for me are there and they're stable and they're never changing. But my affections for him can dwindle and most of the time I don't realize it. Why? Because I'm good at doing the routine. So it feels like it's great But if any maybe hardship came my way or discomfort or a little fear of missing out, all of a sudden I'm going to, I'm not an atheist or agnostic, of course, but all of a sudden I'm going to believe the lies. There's more to be gained by disobeying God. There's to be gained by obeying him. Or I got to go around God. That's what I'm looking for rather than right to him. And what is God calling us to? Returning to love of him 
that's going to be based on our affections for God, not just our knowledge of God or the things we do in our eyes for God. Now, there's a big difference. You, you might go, so, so you ask me to get more emotional? Like, is that what it means? Like, I'm, not very, I'm not a very emotional person. That's not at all what I'm talking about. So there's a difference between affections and emotions. Actually, a major difference. They can look like each other, even though they couldn't be further apart. Affections are long-lasting. They're deep. They affect your mind, your soul. They're consistent with beliefs. They're based on your convictions about God. That's why good theology matters so much. Because good theology should drive a love for God. And by good theology, I might go, that's kind of vague. I mean that we let the Bible be the Bible. Like what God says about God is what we believe about God and the rest of the scripture story. We don't think we need to add to it or change it or adjust it or suit it to our lifestyles or Americanize them or get them on board with our ambitions, but rather we're about his. It always results in action. It, it does, it brings about something. Like true faith is affection driven and it, it works. It, it does something. It brings about something. And again, it's deep. It's the whole person. It involves the mind, the will, and the feelings. It involves all of those things together. Compare that to emotions, or I should say maybe contrast it. Emotions are fleeting. They're superficial. They're easily manipulated. Oh, are they ever. Just do a social media, just do one scroll of a social media outrage machine or watch the news or even in religious settings where People go to a conference or go to a, they can manipulate you in two seconds. Key change here, it, it, fake cry by the pastor, you know, all those kind of things. Easily manipulated. They're often unable to produce action because they're just so temporary and they're so just kind of me-centered. It works for a minute, but that's really about it. It's often disconnected from the mind and the will. It's only emotional. It's only feelings-driven. and doesn't catch up to the rest of it. That's from Gerald McDermott writing on Edwards' affections. We have to be careful that we don't disconnect our doctrine and what we believe from our life. They should be linked together, and affections do that. So what's important to note is, is not that having pure doctrine and caring about what the Bible says is wrong and not an unworthy goal. Well, like, like they're commended for it. Jesus himself said, I like this. Keep going. That, that's wonderful. Continue here. And it's easy to forget that, that, it's easy to say something like, you hear this often, well, I don't care about all the theology stuff, and all, I just want to love God and love people. That's my theology. Well, that's really dangerous. Because who is this God that you're just going to love? And what does love of God actually look like? What does his love for you actually look like? We understand those things because God has spoken to us through the scriptures, and he wants us to get these things right because his glory is at stake and his name is on the line. So, but doctrine and theology should be what produces our affections. Remember, it's based on belief. We believe about God and the gospel, the good news of Jesus should be what drives us and our affections to grow for him. So when you see theology and Bible study as merely just a classroom endeavor, rather than actual food for our lives, that's when we're in danger of losing our first love. Where instead of just depending on it, rather we just sort of study it. 
where our studying of God's word should lead us more to depend on God, which should make our affections grow for him. Often, also, we can get in trouble if we merely see it as an experience, which might be the other end of just an academic endeavor, where we approach church just wanting to have some kind of feeling or just some kind of moment or some kind of rush or feel better about myself, but experiences come and they go. Experiences aren't bad, but they can't be equated with affection. You have to ask this question living in the South regularly. Is the Christian faith for you just a hobby or merely an association or something you think is good for the kids or something to get your mom off your back, you know, whoever it might be? Or, and this is what first love is about, is it about Jesus? Because if it's not the love of Christ that compels us, 2 Corinthians 5, then it's going to fade away. So what is it in your life, maybe now or in the past, that has driven your idea of religion? And my challenge to you is get rid of it if it's not about Jesus and his church. Get rid of it. It was linked to rules or shame or pressure or just an experience or a feeling or a good luck charm, whatever it might be, or Jesus take the wheel or whatever. Make it about, when I say about Jesus, it's easy to go, yay, Jesus, what does that mean? What he has done for you. His lordship. A relationship with him. Affections that grow for him. Where you love the local church, you love God's people. Here's more from McDermott. Here's examples of what this looks like. So we're not just throwing around words. Here's examples of holy affections are. One, a love for God and others. Scriptures say if we love God, we'll obey his commands. They're linked together. It's also mean there's a hatred of sin. Here's the problem. We're either way too casual about sin, or we hate everyone else's sin and not our own. Anybody relate to that? It's like, I'm well aware of your sin, and I love to judge your sin, but I'm kind of chill about my own. As we grow in our affections for God, we're going to love what he loves. We're going to hate what he hates. Hunger for God and divine things. It's like we're going to actually like want the things of God. We're actually going to want to be a part of the church. We're going to want to be in our Bibles. And there are days when that doesn't happen. And that doesn't mean that you don't have any affection. It just means you need to return over and over again to it. Joy. One thing that's really impacted me during everything going on in Ukraine, from my limited perspective of just watching online and watching on the news, is seeing shots from churches. It's probably the wrong word to use, excuse me. Seeing images from churches. And you see believers who are still gathering together and they're singing songs in their language like, Great is thy faithfulness. It's incredible. Are they scared? I'm sure. Are they happy? I would probably guess not. But they're still able to sing the songs of the faith and prayer the prayers of God's people because they have joy. Because affections are not determined by circumstances. Affections are driven by convictions about God that understand how much God loves us and cause us to love him. I know that's easy to say from a pulpit in Tallahassee, Florida, when that's going on across the world, but the evidence is there that the believers are still living with joy together. Maybe because they believe in the book of Revelation. 
that we do conquer in the end because Jesus has conquered. That's not a promise to win a war here on earth, but it's a promise that ultimately Jesus has the final victory over all things. And then gratitude to God, to be a thankful people. The scriptures say it's often evidenced by our generosity towards our church, towards others, a lack of entitlement, an actual thankfulness to God where all is grace. And we actually really do believe that. And I'd add one more, just mine, and that'd be a heart for the lost. That our affections for God should drive us to want to reach those who are far from God. Rather than judge that we should have a sense of compassion where we really are hurting for those who don't know Jesus. Who are going to stand before God based on their own resume rather than the resume of Jesus as Christians do. If we love God, we should want others to want to experience and to know him and to understand who he is and to have their sins forgiven and to be reconciled to God. His love should compel us to want to do that. As our affections grow for God, we're going to care about those who don't know him, I would hope. And he says this again, remember then how far you have fallen. Like what's happened here? They've drifted from this and it's not going to last Yet you've withstood the first round of persecution, but if it's not based on a love for God, the next time you're going to fall and you're going to abandon the faith altogether. So what's the answer? He says, repent and do the work you did at first. Like, return back to that. One thing I do, this might sound kind of weird, but I kind of came to faith and grew up in the faith in the 90s. Some people say it was the last great decade, so I just want to say that's actually true. But um, I grew up in the 90s, and that's kind of when like a lot of like the, the modern day contemporary praise and worship music kind of came forward, whatever you want to call it. And you might think I'm cheesy, but I think you're cheesy. So there you go. So, but, but I sometimes will, if I'm just, you know, need some encouragement or just had a hard day or maybe forget my first love, whatever it could be, when I'm driving home, I'll put on old 90s music of praise and worship back from when I was a kid because it just reminds me of when times were simpler. And it reminds me of when I maybe first experienced the Lord and when I first came to faith and when I first was excited about reading my Bible and first excited about going to church and first excited about bringing my friends. And it just kind of takes me back to a place. Yeah, there's some nostalgia there and I admit that, but there's more than that. I need the reminders. I need to be taken back. It's like Kenny Chesney's song, I Go Back. You know, I, I need to go back sometimes, and the songs help remind me of that, and God does that regularly with his people. In the Old Testament, when they're wandering, he'll say to them, remember who I am, remember what I've done for you, I'm the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt. Your false gods don't do that for you, they don't love you back, why are you loving them rather than loving me? We love because he first loved us. And he tells them, I'm gonna come to you otherwise and remove your lampstand unless you repent and the lampstand we're told is the churches and i'm telling you around the world and in our own city i think god has removed lampstands from churches taking their church away and i don't mean a physical building maybe they still meet on sunday morning at 11 o'clock and pass out bulletins and say a prayer but they're dead Maybe they have a crowd, but it's for the wrong reasons. In terms of it's just, they're not saying much. Maybe apologizing for the Bible. Giving you a self-help, self-help, self-help talk you could find in a book at Barnes & Noble on the 399 rack outside. Others, just a liberal theology. I don't mean politics, theology. 
that denies much of the scriptures, takes away things from the Bible they don't like, or a fundamentalism which adds things to the Bible that aren't there that they want. No influence anymore. Haven't seen someone get baptized in years. Now, I don't want to be unfair. Maybe that doesn't mean they've lost their first love. Maybe they're just, they're trying to know what to do, but others, that could be the case. I mean, do you really think that God is going to forever allow fruit to come from churches that aren't driven by a love for him? That kind of haunts me. I think about it regularly. In my own life first, God, am I driven by a love for you? Because I don't want to pastor for the wrong reasons. I don't want to preach for the wrong reasons. That does not mean that every moment of every day I'm like, woo, go Jesus. That'd be nice. I haven't met that Christian yet. And if you have, I probably want to punch him, honestly. But the church and the Christ relationship is just a mere marriage for us. We're called the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom. It's an image that we see in the scriptures. It's very theological and very important. You think about marriage for a minute. If, as a bride, like every single day, are you like, yay, my husband? Sometimes you're like, oh, he's going out of town? Woo, yeah, right? So sometimes you need a little break, right? The newlyweds are like, it's been just wonderful, and he's the greatest man in the world. You just wait, sister, you just wait. So, but you'll see someone post a 50th wedding anniversary picture on Facebook, or they're probably not on Instagram, Facebook. And in between their Donald Trump posts and everything else, everyone's like, you're talking about my mom. <laughs> so they'll, they'll say, definitely, okay. We'll meet afterwards. I got, I got some help for you. Okay, so they'll say things like, 50th anniversary, I love him more or I love her more than I did the first day we got married. What happened over time? Their affections grew for each other. Their affections grew. They don't look the same, don't have as much hair. That spring break six pack's now a dad bod. But I love her more than I did 50 years ago. You'll hear people say that. It's a common thing, and they're not just saying that. Because their affections grew over time. And Again, not every day is woo, but there's a steady growth of that. And that's what we need to do in returning to our first love, have a steady growth of our affections while remembering that God doesn't have to do that. His affections for us are locked in stone. Like he is the perfect groom. He loves us and he actually likes us if you're his children. Like both. He delights in us. So we now love him because he first loved us. And it says right here, to the one who conquers. But here's the truth. Romans 8, 37 says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. Well, in what things? All that God's done for us. Romans 8, 1 says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It has been conquered. So now we are conquerors in Jesus. So why we get defeated by the things that Jesus has already won victory over? Let's love God, the one who loves us. Let's pray.
Our God, we do thank you that you loved us first because on our own, I don't think we would ever choose you or love you, but you loved and chose us. How incredible. We thank you for that grace. Let us respond to that in faithfulness. Lord, we ask that we will learn more about you and that won't just lead to knowledge or the chance to win a Bible trivia contest, but it'll lead to affections for you. For those here in this room that maybe their faith background is complicated or has left some scars, Lord, I just ask you to open their eyes to see that it wasn't that you were the problem. Maybe they never were experienced the love of God in Christ. So we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Well, let that be what motivates us, what compels us. Ask that our church will be about Jesus, the one who's very much about us. How incredible. That's what we must give a world. Lord, allow Tallahassee to see that it's about Jesus. Let everything else that we do and believe and stand for and are passionate about be driven by our convictions that Jesus is the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. We worship our sovereign creator today. As in Jesus' name, we pray and ask this. Amen.